the major world conflict in the world today is between the United States and China. And the series of lectures is going to be uh, about how economic theory explains this conflict and uh, how it's developed historically. Uh, it's not simply a conflict between two industrial rivals competing for a market. It's between two different economic systems. But it, the, it's not between capitalism and socialism. It's between the logic of an industrial economy and the logic of a financial economy, finance capitalism. The United States is deindustrializing, and it's also financializing. It's going in the opposite direction from which China has gone for the last uh, 30 years. Now, that makes the kind of capitalism that we have in the United States very different from the capitalism in Marx's day and from the capitalism uh, in America's 19th century when it really took off. America in the 19th century was doing pretty much what China's doing today. Uh, and Europe was doing pretty much what China's doing today. The first thing they did was they wanted protective tariffs for their industry. They wanted government in, uh, investment in education, roads, communications, uh, all of the basic public infrastructure so that they could supply the basic needs of people at the lowest possible uh, price. And uh, all of this was uh, considered the logic of industrial capitalism. It also was called socialism, even in the 19th century. Uh, almost all of the observers after about 1848, uh, the whole half of the second half of the 19th century, everybody thought that capitalism was evolving into an increasing role to play by government and socialism was one form of another. And the first characteristic of socialism was to stop the landlord class that had emerged from the uh, medieval period of Europe, uh, to stop uh, the banking class, to stop monopolists. They, uh, capitalism was revolutionary and it was as revolutionary as socialism is. That's why uh, it was turning into socialism, because in order to uh, compete with other countries, uh, Great Britain, the United States, and Germany had to lower the cost of uh, labor that uh, industrialists had to pay their employees. Now, you had to pay all employees enough money to live and to break even. The basic subsistence wage uh, you had to pay, and that meant you had to pay them enough uh, to buy their own housing, they needed to buy food, and as uh, technology began to rise, they needed to have a, uh, a good education. And pretty soon uh, in the United States, throughout the, uh, the 19th century, you had uh, what was called the American School of Economists. They were the pro-industrial school, the business school. Today they'd be called socialists. Uh, because uh, they said, well, uh, you have to pay uh, labor more because well-fed labor is more productive. Well-educated labor is more productive. Uh, Well-housed labor is more productive and healthier labor is more productive. And if the government pays for the costs of public health, then uh, it's going to, uh, the capitalists' uh, employers won't have to pay for it. So we want the government to pay for as much of the basic needs of the population as possible so that the industrial employers can pay their labor as little as possible so that the products they sell uh, can undersell 
the uh, industry of countries that don't have a capitalist revolution, that don't get rid of the feudal landlord class, that don't get rid of monopolies, and that let their basic uh, infrastructure be held in uh, uh, private hands. So uh, this is exactly what China's doing today. Uh, it's what America did, and it's the inherent logic of industrial competition in the world. Uh, today is very different. Today, the U.S. economy is shrinking, but the stock market is soaring, and the United States is simply following what uh, economist economic theories and their textbooks and their national income statistics say is the most efficient. That is most efficient at making money. Now, here's the problem that I want to talk about in this lecture. When Chinese students are sent to the United States to study economics, they're taught in American textbooks that it's more efficient to financialize the economy than to industrialize it. And when trade theory and uh, international relations are taught, uh, the textbooks are all in agreement. China should not have industrialized. It was a disaster for China to industrialize, that if China followed the theory of comparative advantage, it would have uh, remained making paper flowers and uh, labor-intensive handicrafts uh, in agriculture. Because when it industrialized, it interfered with the market. And that's socialism, and it would have been more efficient if China just would have let uh, the rich people, a uh, very rich landlord class, take over and squeeze out an economic surplus from uh, low-priced labor. And uh, that was its comparative advantage. And China interfered with this. And uh, uh, interfering is supposed to uh, cost money, but uh, it was not a free market. And a free market means it's free for the wealthy people to take over the government to impoverish the rest of the economy. That's the opposite of what uh, Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and all of the 19th century people defined as a free market. They said a free market is a market free from rent free from the rentier class, that is the rent extracting class, uh, a whole class of people who made money not by being part of the production process, not by uh, uh, innovating or playing a productive role at all, but just collecting rents uh, on how uh, being a landlord, uh, being uh, a monopolist, uh, and uh, extracting money. Now, of course, what they're taught in uh, the textbooks is all nonsense, but it's nonsense that the American mainstream has come to believe, and it's the nonsense that's led America itself to, uh, to de-industrialize. Uh, and to, uh, that's why the housing costs are so high. Uh, in New York, uh, the average, New York City, the average uh, rent is uh, $4,000 a month. That's $50,000 a year. Healthcare begins at uh, $6,000 uh, per person a year. And uh, if you actually get sick, that can be another anywhere from $6,000 to $50,000. Uh, and basically, if you are uh, a wage earner and you get sick, you go bankrupt uh, because the health care is so expensive in the United States. That's what's happening today. Uh, because we have the uh, pandemic on, uh, there's uh, maybe 40 million uh, unemployed uh, during the pandemic, people have not been able to pay their rent. All of a sudden, there are going to be millions of people in January that are evicted from their houses for not paying rent. Already 70% of the restaurants in the United States and the hotels have closed down. The whole economy, uh, the real economy, hotels, restaurants, grocery stores, 
uh, is shrinking and the stock market is soaring because for the financial class, this is a bonanza. For Wall Street and the financial center, they can now begin to pick up all this real estate uh, that people are uh, losing and forfeiting at a low price. They can pick up, they can uh, make the big companies crowd out all of the small uh, family-owned companies. Now, the problem is that small companies employ over half of the American population. And if these companies disappear, if they're all taken over by the large conglomerates uh, and monopolies, then you're going to have a shrinkage of employment. You're going to have uh, uh, many homeless people. You're going to have a poor economy. And the economic textbooks say, that's the way to get rich. You can make money and get rich fastest when the economy is shrinking. Adam Smith said that profits are often highest when the economy is going fastest to ruin. And that's what's happening uh, today. There's a gravitization, as the Russians call it. There's a grabbing of assets. There's a grabbing of property. Uh, what is remarkable is when you look at the statistics that compare uh, the United States gross domestic product, GDP, uh, the American economy seems to be getting richer. Uh, even as uh, there's mass unemployment, even as there are evictions, and even as, as it's getting poor. And the reason is because uh, when uh, housing prices are inflated, when the stock market is inflated, when people are making money not by producing goods and services, but by owning stocks and bonds and real estate, they're getting uh, so much richer that this is counted as an increase in GDP. If, you're, uh, if you have to borrow more money uh, to buy a more expensive house and uh, the house prices are inflated and everybody has to pay more money uh, to uh, rent an apartment, then that's counted as an increase in GDP, as if this is actually a product. And the product is simply the rise in the cost of housing, the rise in the cost of education. Uh, there is no distinction between productive and unproductive labor. Uh, and uh, you can imagine that uh, if, if Americans were to be given all of their food, all of their clothing, everything they need for free, they still couldn't compete with Chinese labor or Asian labor or other countries' labor because the cost of housing and health care, insurance and taxes alone are way more than uh, uh, labor earns in any other uh, foreign country. Uh, there's an enormous amount of medical care as a result of the pandemic. The pandemic has pushed up GDP because you spend much more money on doctors, on uh, medical services, on uh, hospital visits. Uh, it costs uh, $20,000 to be uh, taken by a helicopter to the hospital uh, if you're in the countryside or if you're uh, the President uh, Trump and have to be carried across town. Uh, this expensive economy is considered how to get rich. Uh, and there's no distinction between economic rent, which is unearned income, and uh, actually uh, producing goods and services and profits. And yet that's what classical economics is all about a century ago. Uh, the profits were something that the industrialist makes by hiring labor to produce goods to sell at a markup. Uh, and rents are something that a landlord gets just for inheriting property and charging more for it. It's something that a banker gets just for 
creating money and uh, charging interest to people who need it. It's what a, a drug company will get to say, uh, well, we have uh, a test for coronavirus. <clears throat> it's going to cost you $2,000 to take the test. <clears throat> That's what it costs in the United States. So the medical costs go up, uh, the cost structure goes up. That's considered actually producing more. Uh, and of course, this is, this is so much nonsense that I don't think it's hard for other countries to really believe it if they don't look at how the statistics are put together. But not, there's no university that I know of in the United States that teaches how do you uh, look at the gross domestic product statistics? What do the national income statistics mean? What are the balance of payment statistics? Uh, I, caught, I taught this 50 years ago, uh, but I the course I was giving were the only ones. So I think these, uh, if you look at the list of billionaires in the United States today, they're not industrialists. They're financial and banking tycoons. They're monopolists. They're absentee landlords. Uh, but industry itself has been taken over by the financial sector. And in practice, it's been uh, deindustrialized. In the United States, more than 90% of the uh, corporate profits are not used to uh, expand the business. They're not used to start new factories. They're not used to uh, employ more people. They're used simply to pay out as dividends or to buy back their shares. And if you use your uh, profits to buy back the stock in your company, that pushes up the stock price. And uh, companies are run not to produce more goods, not to employ more, not to produce more output or to even make a profit, but to increase the, uh, uh, the stock price. So economics is really all about wealth and basically financial wealth or, and claims on the real economy. And any country's system of wealth, of real estate, stocks and bonds, these are claims on labor and industry. Uh, so uh, it's an inside out world. Looking at a, uh, uh, an economy financially is uh, in, uh, looking at the liability side of the balance sheet. What do borrowers owe the creditors? Uh, and the, cre the creditors, uh, what they have in savings, that's their wealth. The 1% gets wealthy by having the 99% of the population in debt to itself. Landlords get wealthy by uh, monopolizing uh, housing and making people pay more and more and more. So these lectures are largely about uh, whether China wants to follow the American way of being efficient and getting rich financially, or whether it wants to be a socialist country and uh, save itself from the American disease of creating a wealthy class at the top that's going to take over government and make itself richer by making uh, the bottom 90% uh, uh, poorer. Now, I began to teach all this uh, in 1969 uh, it, it, uh, in New York, and uh, the lectures that I gave in Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt have been published in China in 2012, so uh, my lecture theories uh, there. And at the very outset of teaching, I worked on Wall Street for 10 years, uh, and I was invited, someone said, why don't you begin to teach? Uh, uh, and I thought, well, that's uh, a nice idea. But I had a problem in teaching. Uh, they showed me all the textbooks for international trade theory. If I taught 
the trade theory that was in the textbooks, it was not realistic. But if I taught the students how trade and investment actually work today, then it's going to be the opposite of the textbook models. What was I going to do? Was I going to teach reality or textbooks? Well, the, the way to get promoted in the United States to a, a, from a, a assistant professor to associate professor to full professor is to teach what's in the textbook and everybody else. So I decided, well, I can always go back to Wall Street. I'm going to read what they say in the textbooks. Uh, I actually had not read any textbooks in trade theory. I did have a PhD in economics, but they never talked about trade theory because quite frankly, it's so silly. Uh, and uh, what foreign students are taught in the United States is so silly that nobody, none of my friends uh, even wanted to go near it. But uh, I thought, well, let's see what the textbooks say. And it's, uh, it was an unrealistic attempt to justify free trade. In fact, uh, almost all economic theory in the textbook is an advertisement. And it's an advertisement for a political theory. It, its objective is not to describe how Britain and the United States and Germany industrialized and gained world leadership. It's the policy that they wanted other countries to follow. So that they wanted other countries to be dependent on their leadership. So their economic theory was telling other countries, don't do what we did, do what we say, uh, be dependent on us. You should produce uh, agriculture, food, raw materials, and let us be uh, produce your industrialization. That's the international specialization of labor and everybody gains. And uh, when Ricardo uh, in uh, 1817 drew up his uh, trade theory and theory of economic rent, the classical economics is uh, largely based on, uh, he had Portugal uh, trade wine uh, with uh, England that was producing textiles and Portugal was a big gainer. And in his mathematical model, it wasn't really a statistical model. It was uh, like other mathematical models, they're fake. When people use mathematics to describe an idea, especially if it's very complicated mathematics, and they're not using actual statistics, you can be sure that they're trying to put something over on you. They're saying, don't look at reality, look at the model. And if you can just distract their attention to a kind of parallel universe, all of a sudden you're not studying economics anymore. You're in the literature department. You're studying science fiction about a parallel universe. And uh, that's basically what uh, students are taught in the United States, which is why almost all of my better students at the new school, uh, uh, they've gone through the master's degree, uh, many of them through a PhD degree. They said, we don't want to be economists. This is silly. Why would we want to do this? This isn't reality. We're going to uh, be realistic. They went on to work on Wall Street. They went into uh, some, one of them raised horses. Uh, they just uh, dropped out of the field because the field is really an unrealistic field. <clears throat> so if you uh, accept the kind of free trade propaganda that you get in the textbooks, you're led to a hypothetical world that uh, Nobel Prizes uh, are given to, to try to convince people that that's economic science. But it's not economic science, it's, uh, it's religion, it's, uh, it's uh, superstition. It's the idea that you can get rich by not uh, having the government play any role at all. Well, every country from uh, England, uh, America, uh, Germany, Europe, every country's getting rich the same way that China is getting rich today. It's a mixed economy. You need the government uh, to provide the infrastructure at a low price 
and not let it be monopolized. You need uh, a government strong enough to prevent a landlord class from emerging. And the great challenge to China today is uh, many of uh, uh, Chinese and Asians and the whole world in the past looked to America and said, well, we want to be like America. That's what Russia thought. How do we be like America? Uh, well, let's ask the Americans how to get rich. And the Americans told the Russians, well, first of all, you take all the, the raw materials, all of your oil and gas, all of your nickel and diamonds and uh, uh, electric utilities, and you just give them to an individual, let him uh, get, give it to him free, let him issue stocks, uh, and uh, uh, he'll, get, uh, he'll sell the stocks in New York, and uh, he'll get rich uh, in no time, because if you let us buy your... Uh, buy into these companies, we'll bid up your stocks because now uh, we're going to get uh, all the money from your land and real estate, from your oil and gas, from your electric utility. We'll get them in the financial class and Russia won't get them. And of course, you'll be very poor, but the, uh, the kleptocrats, the people who give themselves uh, the oil and gas uh, wells in their own name, uh, the electric utilities in their own name, they will get so rich that your GDP will actually go up, even though 99% of the population is getting poor. Well, the 1% uh, of the Russia said, sounds good to us, and that's just what they did. Uh, it's not what China did. China did not play by the textbook theory. Uh, and economic history teaches the opposite of what textbooks uh, teach, which is why uh, in, in the United States, they don't teach economic history anymore as part of economics. If you look at history, all of a sudden you're going to say, wait a minute, the world doesn't work that way. Uh, so uh, it's not, they don't teach history and they don't even teach the history of economic thought. Because if you teach the hi history of how economic thought actually begun, you find that it was exactly the opposite in the 19th century of what we have today. The uh, Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, uh, Ricardo, they were talking about the economics of industrial capitalism and uh, uh, how to industrialize a country and get richer. Uh, today's economy says how 1% can get richer by deindustrializing and making the economy poorer. So the question is, who are you going to believe, the textbooks or economic history? Uh, I think when ever you're given an economic theory, you need to ask who benefits. Any economic theory is going to benefit one class or one nation relative to other classes and nations. And uh, today's mainstream economics, as I said, is propaganda for finance capitalism. Uh, and uh, it's uh, what's taught is whatever is in the United States national interest uh, in its role as the world's most financialized economy. So its logic rejects that of industrial capitalism, and that's why uh, you don't uh, study classical economics anymore. And classical political economy seemed to be moving not, uh, not towards uh, the kind of free market we have today, but towards socialism. Uh, it had, uh, from Adam Smith to Ricardo, uh, John Stuart Mill to Marx, uh, to Thorstein Veblen, they all, all of the classical economists had one common denominator. They advocated that you have to tax the land rent uh, to prevent a landlord class from getting privilege, that any country's taxes should be on land rent. Because if you don't tax the land rent, as rent is, uh, uh, everybody wants housing. As population increases, 
as the economy gets richer, as cities build uh, sewers and infrastructure, and transportation and parks and museums, obviously the rental value of any house is going to go up. Now, what, uh, if uh, this uh, rent, this added value is uh, left to bankers, uh, not, it's not taxed, then uh, people are going to have to borrow more and more money this and the banker is going to end up with all the rent and the bankers today are in the same position that British landlord class and Europe's landlord class was in in the past. But if the government taxes away uh, the land rent, then housing prices are going to be kept down. I'm going to discuss this more in chapter four, which is all going to be all about land and real estate and food. Uh, but I just want to uh, give a heads up now to say that this is uh, the center of uh, classical value theory. And to explain what rent is, they develop value and price theory. The value of any product, of any house, uh, of uh, any uh, company was uh, the cost of production. It was the cost of labor, and it was the cost of labor that was needed to make the capital goods and the raw materials and everything that went into uh, production. Uh, but prices often were higher than this value. And what was higher was something that didn't have any cost counterpart in the cost of production. It was something that, that was for free. Nature produces the land for free. The land is there. Uh, the question is who's going to get the value of the rising housing valuation? Uh, will it be the government, in which case uh, uh, you can own, you can own the, the house, and I think ever since uh, 5,000 years ago, everybody wants to have their own house. They want to own their own house. The question is, uh, if their house gets more valuable, they're supposed to at least uh, earn enough money to pay the carrying charges, to pay the rent. Now, if the government collects uh, this increased value, then the increased value, people will pay just what they're paying now, but it'll go to pay the government. But if the government doesn't collect this increased value, then the bankers are going to lend it to somebody to buy and the bankers are going to get it. So the question is, who do you want to be the beneficiary of prosperity? Do you want a class that doesn't create value, that gets a free lunch uh, to uh, get uh, rich or, uh, and it's going to use its rich, to, its wealth to get richer and richer and taking more and more uh, public uh, enterprise away from the government, or do you want uh, uh, the, the government basically to uh, get its taxes from uh, from the free lunch? The uh, the classical economist said you really shouldn't tax labor because if you tax workers, then the their employers are going to have to pay them enough money to pay the taxes. In the United States, uh, a worker has to right away get fifteen percent of the salary set aside to pay for retirement, social security, and uh, medical uh, care when they're older. And they also have about up to 20 to 30% of their uh, wage set aside to pay taxes. Now, the classical economists would say, none of this should be uh, taken off. Uh, the, uh, the retirement should be paid out of uh, what the economy produces once you reach retirement age. You don't have to uh, save before you retire because if you save, you give it to a banker, the banker lends it to somebody who borrows to buy a corporation, fire the labor, uh, downsize the company, and move the company to China. 
uh, that may be good for China temporarily, but it wasn't uh, very good for the United States. And that's what the last uh, election here was all about. So uh, the question is, uh, what, uh, who is going to get the economic surplus and uh, what are they going to use, be used for? Well, uh, by the end of the 19th century, almost every country in Europe and the United States, especially the business schools, said we need government to play a rising role in, in, uh, uh, in society. We need to prevent a wealthy landlord class from developing. That was feudalism. We want to get rid of feudalism. We want to get rid of a hereditary class where people uh, get rich by uh, inheriting a trust fund, inheriting property, not having to work for themselves. Everybody should uh, have to work, work for themselves and we want equality of opportunity. And that takes the government strong enough to, to prevent a wealthy class from developing. This same question, by the way, went way back to the Byzantine Empire. It went way, way back to Greece and Rome. It went back to Mesopotamia. Every country for the last 5,000 years has had a fight between uh, a strong government and a wealthy class of landlords and creditors that try to emerge and take all of the economic surplus for themselves. So by the late 19th century, everybody agreed that the world was moving towards socialism of one kind or another. There was Christian socialism, there was Ricardian socialism, uh, taking the land rent and privileged income. There was Marxian socialism. There was even libertarian anarchist socialism. Uh, then came, all this changed in World War I. And in World War I, as we'll be discussing in the next few lectures, uh, the world stopped taking the socialist uh, line of development uh, that was pioneered by Germany and the United States. Uh, the United States emerged as a creditor nation. Uh, Europe was broke and uh, the United States uh, insisted in being paid for all of the arms that it had sold to the European allies before they entered the war. Uh, Europe went bankrupt and the United States, to make a long story short, absorbed almost all of the world's gold by uh, the end of World War II. Uh, and uh, the result is that the United States used its financial wealth to uh, create an entire different economy, an entirely different kind of ethic. It no longer fought, uh, supported socialism. In fact, as soon as the Russian Revolution occurred in 1917, uh, the United States and Britain sent troops over to try to fight uh, to overthrow uh, the Russian government. Uh, the, uh, the whole idea was called pulling up the ladder. We in the United States, England and Europe are, uh, are rich by having a strong government. Let's prevent any other country from getting rich the way we did. Let's prevent any other country from having a government strong enough to uh, uh, limit a, a financial class because we are going to be the financial class. We're going to be a global financial class and finance capitalism is a, a, global, uh, a, a global movement. Now, the, uh, the result is that uh, where instead of uh, uh, being a protectionist, once uh, America became the industrial producer uh, of the world, it insisted on free trade. It's just what England did. In the early 19th century, uh, England had gotten rich through a policy called mercantilism, protecting its own industry, subsidizing its industry, and preventing the col its colonies from developing any industry in its own. 
The objective of industrial England was to make its colonies and other countries dependent on it. Likewise, in the United States, it got rich by uh, protective tariffs, by government uh, subsidy of infrastructure. It then said, okay, now uh, we are the leading industrial producer. We want other countries to be dependent on us. So it began to teach a theory that told other countries, don't protect yourself. That's socialist. Don't uh, have the government develop industry. Don't do anything at all. Just follow your comparative advantage. Your advantage is in being poor. Use it as an advantage. Use your poverty to make low-priced labor. You can make paper flowers and uh, sew up baseballs and leave everything, all the capital investment to us. And uh, that's what uh, has been taught in textbooks since uh, basically uh, since World War, War uh, One. And the idea is that uh, America, England, and other industrial countries would export high-profit manufacturers to countries that agreed to specialize in agriculture and raw materials production and low-wage handicrafts. And that was called free trade imperialism. Free trade is a way of making other countries dependent on you if they're naive enough to believe what's in the textbook and they don't try to get rich by having their own government and if they don't follow what now is called uh, socialism. Uh, and uh, as soon as World War, I, World War II was ending, in 1944, the United States created the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And the World Bank uh, told uh, other countries, Latin America, Africa, and Asia, well, uh, we, we'll make loans for you to develop, but you cannot uh, develop by competing with anything that America produces. You cannot grow your own food. You should grow plantation export crops. Don't have land reform because land reform people, you know, once you have land reform, you have socialism and the government and you're independent. Uh, you, you want plantations. Uh, uh, you want to buy all your food in the United States and don't create any manufacturers that can compete with this. So the World Bank would make loans for, uh, for roads to export uh, raw materials, to export food, uh, uh, ports. They wouldn't make loans to develop the domestic economy. And the international, and obviously countries following this very quickly ran into a trade deficit. That was the whole idea. America and the industrial nations want other countries to run a deficit with them. That's how they get rich, by running a surplus with other countries. And uh, countries would have to then begin to borrow money from the International Monetary Fund to finance the deficit. Otherwise, their currency would go down and they'd get poorer and poorer. So the International Monetary Fund said, okay, we'll lend you the money, uh, but you have to follow certain rules. You have to prevent unionization. Uh, you don't want labor unions. You have to lower the price of labor. Yeah, you have to dismantle government. Uh, you have to balance your budget by selling off your electric utilities, your roads, your ports to private uh, uh, private investors, mainly American investors, British investors, and European investors. And so all of a sudden, you had what seemed to be an international economy pretending to make the whole world rich, actually making the whole world poor and poor. So uh, adopting free trade and failing to control foreign capital movements actually underdeveloped economies. A new word had to be introduced to the language. You underdevelop an economy by making it dependent instead of actually uh, developing it. Uh, and so the theory of how to economic growth became just as warped uh, as it is today as the United States is uh, deindustrializing. And the ideal of 
American economic diplomacy was to make other countries dependent on the United States farm exports so that uh, if a country does something the United States didn't want, like China did something that America really didn't like in the 1940s and 50s, it had a revolution under Mao. So what did America do? It said, we'll starve them all. We'll show that the only way China can succeed economically uh, is to uh, re uh, get rid of the communists. And so we're going to have an embargo. We're going to tell countries, don't sell any grain to China. Make it starve. And America passed the grain embargo to try to starve China. Canada uh, said, wait a minute, our farmers make money. If, we, uh, if we're producing all this uh, grain, if we don't sell it to China uh, and uh, countries that are like it, then all of a sudden our prices will go down and all of our farmers have got to go bankrupt. So they broke the embargo, they sold their grain to China, and that's how China was able to survive under Mao. But what this showed Mao was that the United States wanted to make China as dependent on the United States as possible. Just like today, when uh, President Trump is saying, we're going to have an embargo on uh, 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 information technology, on chips, on, on uh, high technology uh, to China, uh, we'll try to disrupt its industry. The United States strategy is to be in a position where it can disrupt the uh, economies uh, and the industrial production of China or any other country that doesn't agree to sell off its economy to American investors to make uh, American banks uh, come in and uh, end up uh, getting all the benefit of uh, higher uh, Chinese uh, 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 housing prices, uh, a lot of Americans buy out your companies, uh, as Trump is insisting that TikTok uh, sell its uh, its company to America free, just as if you're going to have to grab it. And then uh, you were going to pay you something for it, but then we're going to tax what you get. Uh, it's simply an asset grab. Uh, the new kind of warfare in today's world is economic warfare. It's not monetary warfare. It's economic warfare. Uh, and uh, Part of the economic warfare is intellectual and ideological warfare, and that's what Chinese are taught when uh, they're sent uh, to the United States to study. I don't understand why China would send its students to the United States to study economics when uh, the way that China is managing its own economy uh, is the opposite of everything that uh, is taught uh, in the textbooks, because as I said, <clears throat> Every uh, successful economy is a mixed public-private economy. Uh, and the most important sectors to keep in public hands are public utilities, banking and credit. China does this. In the United States now, there are a lot of bankruptcies of companies. When a company is bankrupt, uh, the, the banker and uh, the bondholders take over and they sell to the uh, highest bidder at a fraction of the actual price. Just as when they foreclose on a house, uh, they'll sell the house at an auction at a low price. Now, many Chinese companies also are not able to pay uh, uh, the money that they've uh, borrowed from the Bank of China. But the Bank of China is very different from a private banker in the United States. The Bank of China says, okay, uh, we understand that you can't pay uh, the debt that you're scheduled to pay. What are we going to do? We're not going to shut you down. We're not going to make you fire your workforce. We want to keep you in business because you're our means of production. So we're just going to write down the debt of what you can pay. 
uh, we're going to provide you with enough credit that you can uh, create your factory, you can buy your raw materials, uh, but we want to, uh, when uh, you can't uh, make a profit uh, and pay uh, the interest and the debt that we've given you, we're not going to shut you down because otherwise we're going to have mass unemployment like the United States. Uh, China runs its financial system uh, to allocate resources to keep its economy growing. And the, the reality is that in every financialized economy, uh, it's centrally planned. America is more centrally planned than the Soviet Union was. America is the most centrally planned economy in the world, but it's planned by Wall Street. It's planned by the financial sector. It's planned by the bondholders. And the fact is they're awful planners. Their planning is what's bankrupted the, company, the country. Their form of planning is what is deindustrializing the United States. Uh, China's planning does not bankrupt the country. China's planning, uh, it, uh, still, it's the Bank of China. It's the government that decides who's going to get the credit to build what factories where, to build houses, to, uh, to house the Chinese, to build roads, uh, to build uh, the communication system and the uh, infrastructure and the uh, telephone system. Uh, but it, its aim is uh, industrial engineering, not financial engineering. Somehow in the United States, the fact that finance and credit and money is the central planning thing has led the United States to uh, abandon industrial engineering and to do financial engineering, whose objective is not to produce more goods and services. It's simply, as I said, to increase stock prices, to increase housing prices, to, and all of this is increased by debt. You, you borrow more money to buy a house. And people will say, I'm getting rich, the house is worth more, but it's getting worth more because you're borrowing more and more money to the bank and you have to pay more and more interest charges on your mortgage. And uh, while you think you're getting rich, you're actually getting more and more in debt. But strange as it may seem, debt is not included in the economics models. It's not included in the curriculum. Uh, the, just like uh, the uh, GDP statistics don't include uh, uh, they count disease as increasing GDP. They count the increase in crime as increasing GDP because you need more gates on the windows, you need more policemen, you need more protection. All that increases GDP. When you get sick, that increases it. You know, hospital uh, expenses go up, you need more doctor's payments, you need more drugs. Uh, the more a drug company can charge for drugs, the more GDP goes up. Uh, this is a, uh, people, uh, can't believe that this is actually how they make the statistics. But the joke used to be uh, in, uh, in New York and in Germany, you don't want to see how a sausage is made. You may like eating frankfurters and uh, sausages. You don't want to go to the store and see how it's made because then you're not going to want to eat it anymore. Well, you can say the same thing about GDP statistics. Uh, you don't want to see how they're made because you think, wait a minute, that's uh, uh, sort of goofy that they don't know the difference between a cost and overhead, uh, between wealth and overhead. And uh, what they think is wealth is actually the ability to charge the rest of the economy more and more and more. So instead of making the United States more productive, this financialization has uh, deindustrialized it and made it a post-industrial economy. Well, already 50 years ago, uh, 40 years ago, all sorts of books are being written, the post-industrial economy, why it's going to be good for you. Nobody will have to work. 
We can all live on uh, by saving money and putting it in the stock market and uh, live off the rising value of our houses. Well, how can the price of a house rise unless new buyers don't have to borrow more and money, more and more money to buy it? This was a it was a kind of silly uh, kind of reasoning. But uh, again, if you look at uh, the list of the uh, richest uh, men in the United States. Uh, Forbes magazine has the richest 500 Americans, the richest 500 Europeans. I think it has a list of the 100 rich, richest Chinese. Uh, the way to make money is not by industrialization in these countries. It's really by getting something from the public domain. And novelists understand this more than uh, uh, economists. Uh, Balzac, uh, Balzac, the French novelist, said that behind uh, every family fortune is a great theft. Usually it's forgotten about. You know, people don't really know, how did they get this land that made them so rich? How did the members of Britain's House of Lords get all the money to give them all this real estate? Well, long ago, uh, 800 years ago, their ancestors were warlords. They got in a warlord band, they conquered England, and they gave all the land to themselves on a hereditary basis. Uh, that was a theft. Uh, in the United States uh, the, in the 19th century, the railroad barons uh, essentially uh, uh, bribed politicians to give them uh, land around the railroads. They became the richest uh, people. Almost uh, every country uh, has uh, rich people getting, privatizing something from the public domain, whether it's uh, national forests or water rights or land rights uh, that you see from the uh, Native Americans. Uh, uh, basically, uh, it's a free lunch. Now, when Milton Friedman came to China, I think 30 or 40 years ago, uh, and tried to uh, tell him, here's uh, how Americans got rich. Uh, it really wasn't Ameri how Americans got rich, but uh, he, he told them, there, uh, he got famous for his slogan, there is no such thing as a free lunch. The reality is, economics is all about how to get a free lunch. You get rich by exploiting somebody by getting something for nothing. Uh, you can grab the, you can take their land, push them off it, and then you can charge them rent for it. That's how the Romans got rich in antiquity. Uh, you can get rich by bribing the government to get, uh, build a road that goes right by land that you've owned, which is many Hollywood movies are made about how uh, Southern uh, mayors and governors got rich that way. Uh, uh, but you almost always get rich by somehow corrupting uh, government. So government corruption is the way to get rich. Uh, the, the Americans would say, well, there you are. The way for China to get rich is you want to corrupt enough government so you can have as many billionaires as Russia and America has. Uh, I hope that's not the way China goes. And uh, uh, th they should have seen that this was what uh, Milton Friedman was trying to tell them uh, in the beginning. So all this poses the question, what kind of economic theory can explain what problems that you should avoid and uh, not to suffer uh, that are plaguing the United States uh, and European economies? How do you avoid the kind of uh, poverty that uh, you're having in the United States. Uh, and the debt deflation, uh, the fact that almost all, if income goes up for American wage earners, all their income is paid to the bankers for housing, for their credit card companies, for medical insurance. It's not paid for goods and services. It's paid for the rent extracting class. Well, obviously China needs a financial system. 
uh, and obviously it needs homes of its own. The question is, how do you avoid organizing your real estate and your industry in the way that the United States? And fortunately, there is a, a theory to explain this problem. And that's what 19th century classical political economy was all about. It's how to prevent landlords from dominating society, how to prevent the banks and creditors from enriching themselves at the rest of the economy. So, uh, and it was out of this classical economics that Marxism evolved. And Marxism became the capstone of British political economy. He pushed uh, classical economics of Adam Smith, Ricardo, John Stuart Mill to its logical conclusion. Because he said, you know, just like uh, the landowners, hereditary landlords exploit uh, uh, rent payers, uh, the employers exploit labor. They, they, their idea is to pay labor as little as possible and sell the product it makes for a profit, as much of a markup as it can get, that's their profit. And capitalism is exploited too. Uh, and the question is, do you want an exploitative society or do you want to minimize exploitation? And Marx said, uh, ultimately, uh, capitalism is revolutionary. Right now, people say Marx is a revolutionist. But what was made Marx a revolutionist was he said capitalism is revolutionary because the industrial capitalists of Europe said, if we wanted England to compete, we cannot have protective tariffs to protect agricultural rents. We cannot let the landlord class just take all the economic surplus. We want the surplus to be spent on uh, labor and uh, industry. Uh, and, to, and that meant that you had to change politics. In the whole of 19th century, in every country, England, uh, with, uh, uh, Germany, England had the House of Lords and it had the parliament. There were two houses of government. And uh, the House of Lords uh, was the upper house. And you had to uh, be the, one of your ancestors had to come and murder and grab the land of Englishmen, push them off the land and do to Englishmen what Americans did to the American Indians. You had to grab their land and then make everybody else uh, pay rent. And uh, they could block anything that the House of Commons could do. So there was a whole fight that... Uh, uh, the first fight occurred in 1846 when uh, uh, the uh, House of Commons said, we're not going to protect landlord rents anymore uh, in agriculture. We're going to have free trade and we're going to abolish the foreign laws. And the final great fight was a constitutional crisis in England from 1909 to 1910 when uh, the Commons said, we're going to have a land tax. We're, we're, we're going to end the House of Lords. We're going to take away all their hereditary rents. We're going to get rid of them. That's going to be the taxes. They're going to have to uh, actually go to work for a living now for the first time in a thousand years. And uh, the House of Lords uh, naturally vetoed the bill. There was a crisis. And in 1910, the English system was revised so that the House of Lords no longer could revoke a revenue bill passed by the House of Commons. Uh, by that time, unfortunately, England was already moving towards war and it never did have a land tax. Uh, but uh, the landlord succeeded in preventing England from collecting any statistics on, on land values. Uh, the United States had very excellent statistics on land values. So does Japan. So in the United States, they were able uh, to move much more towards uh, uh, land taxation, and there was a great movement towards that, and there was a movement towards anti-monopoly uh, regulation under uh, Rosa, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, 
The interesting thing is that all of this fight against landlords, the fight against corrupt bankers, uh, the fight against uh, monopolists was led by the business class. And the theory of this was taught in the business schools. And uh, the business schools were founded after uh, uh, the Civil War ended in the United States in 1865. Here's the problem that the, the industrial class had in the United States. All of the textbooks they had were written by British free traders. Uh, the universities in America were basically founded as they were in Europe to train members of the clergy, to, to train uh, religious leaders. And uh, it was all moral philosophy and they picked up all of the free trade doctrines that uh, uh, England was promoting. And the industrialists said, look, we can't have free trade and uh, anti-socialism uh, here because uh, we have to have uh, uh, universities teach how we're actually going to develop a strong government to lead uh, in American industrialization. And so they said, well, we can't go to uh, the religious universities like Harvard and Yale because you can't restructure somebody's mind that's already uh, uh, tunnel vision. So they created new, a whole new set of universities. They created land-grant state universities to teach uh, protectionist economics and economics of strong government. And they created business schools to create how business will get rich by having a public uh, infrastructure as a means of production. But the objective of public infrastructure is to, and this was what uh, the Wharton School of Economics taught in the United States, the first business school. Uh, the first economics professor, Simon Patton, was a protectionist. And he said, the role of public infrastructure investment isn't to make a profit like, you, uh, like uh, uh, private ownership. Uh, the purpose of private investment and in infrastructure is to lower the price of education, lower the price of roads, lower the price of getting health care, lower the price uh, prices that the economy needs for its basic needs so that it can function at a low price so that our industrialists can afford to undersell other countries. That's how America got rich. And that's exactly what China is doing today. But it's exactly what's not taught in the textbook. So the only way that China can actually learn from the United States is to learn how it got rich in the 19th century and to learn how England and uh, uh, Germany and Europe uh, got rich. And that's to discuss uh, essentially value, price, uh, and rent theory. And to focus not so much on exchange but uh, and income, but on wealth. And if you look at wealth, stocks, bonds, housing, uh, assets, wealth is much larger than income and it's distributed much more unequally. Uh, I think 1% of uh, Americans own uh, about 60% of the stock market. Uh, so uh, this is much more, more than 60% uh, of the income. Uh, but if you can control the wealth, then you can, you can control the system of who gets, uh, uh, who gets the income uh, of debt and credit and uh, essentially you end up with a, a centralized economy. Uh, so you end up with the wealth economy being something independent of the real economy of production and consumption. And uh, uh, Marx discussed this in volume three of Capital uh, where he discusses finance. And he says, uh, money and debt and credit grow by purely mathematical laws. Uh, there was interest bearing debt already in 2500 BC, long before there was industrial capitalism. There was debt throughout uh, uh, Greece and Rome. 
That's what essentially bankrupted antiquity. Uh, the, the debt grows by the mathematics of compound interest that are independent of the ability to pay. So the first thing to recognize is that the, uh, the economy's wrapped in a kind of surrounding shell of debt that extracts uh, income from it in the form of debt service. Think of it as a parasite uh, extracting from the host. And the parasite is extracting more, but the parasite is growing much faster than the host. And at a certain point, it extracts so much uh, revenue, so much life from the industrial economy that there's a crash. And that was Marx's theories of crises in the 19th century. Uh, I think that most uh, Marxists today, certainly in the United States, I don't know about China, uh, focus on volume one of Capital, where Marx talks about what he said that was uh, his addition to classical economics, where he's talking about uh, the uh, employers, the industrialists' exploitation of wage labor, selling its products at a markup. Uh, but Marx did that because he said he thought that uh, the other economists before him had already solved the problem of rent. Marx thought that uh, uh, capitalism was going to evolve into socialism once it had got rid of feudalism, once it had got rid of the landlord class, once it had got rid of the uh, predatory banking class and industrialized bank banking, once it had developed uh, government uh, 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 public ownership. And all of this, he said, was leading uh, paving the way to socialism to simply take over when it took over at the point when it decided that it wanted the whole economy to grow together instead of just concentrating all of the wealth at the top of the economic pyramid uh, in the uh, uh, wealthiest 1% uh, of the uh, economy. So the classical idea of a free market was one free from economic rent not free for landlords, monopolists and creditors. The whole idea of a free market to classical economics is the opposite of what uh, the uh, monopolists and the propagandists call a free market today. And they can only get, a, get away with this turning the language upside down by not teaching the history of economic thought, by not teaching economic history. So the one thing that I want to do in these uh, lectures uh, to China is to review and revive uh, this economic history and the kind of uh, economic thought that was uh, developed then. Uh, and as I said, it was developed largely by the uh, conservatives uh, in Britain. Uh, the conservative prime minister, Benjamin Disraeli, was uh, the prime minister from 1874 to 1880. And he said, the health of the people is really the foundation upon which all their happiness and all their power as a state depend. And so he developed what became the national health system of Britain. The idea that you want to keep the labor force and the population healthy because it, it's very expensive to get sick and you miss work and you still have to pay. Well, right now, Donald Trump uh, and the Americans are the opposite. Uh, the, the health of the people, uh, the sickness of the people is the way that the uh, health insurance industry and the drug makers can get rich. Uh, so that's the opposite philosophy. Do you want the health makers to get rich or do you want the people to be healthy? If you make health care, take 18% of America's GDP. Imagine what uh, if China had to pay eight, uh, as much for its health care as the United States does, it wouldn't have any money for it to industrialize. All the money would go to the pharmaceuticals uh, companies. 
uh, just as in the United States, if uh, if the workers have to pay so much for health care, so much for health insurance, so much for housing, how on earth can they compete with China? And that's what makes uh, the conflict internationally today so uh, different from uh, uh, just a conflict between two industrial countries. It's between industrialized China and the financialized, deindustrialized United States. So in the second part of this sec uh, lecture, uh, I'm gonna take a break. I'm gonna talk about how finance capitalism promotes rent seeking and opposes taxes and how finance capitalism destroys industry and industrial capitalism. Well, this lecture is going to be about how finance capitalism uh, is a promoter of rent seeking instead of industry. And uh, the, the most wealth today is made by rent seeking. It's not made by uh, uh, building factories and making products. It, it's made by uh, buying real estate and selling it at a profit, buying stocks and bonds and selling them at a profit. It's made by uh, claims on the economy. And so uh, finance is... Uh, base, it protects the rights to private property. Uh, it also tries to uh, cut taxes on, uh, on wealth. Uh, the way that you get more money from uh, uh, real estate or stocks and bonds is you want uh, the government to tax as little as possible. You want to shift the tax burden onto labor and onto uh, industry, the exact opposite of what uh, the uh, classical tax policy was. Uh, and you want to get control of government. You want bribery. You want to buy control of the politicians uh, by uh, backing their political campaign so that they will uh, pass laws and uh, uh, enact them in the courts uh, to do uh, things that help you. Uh, and again, the more money you make, this is called, called uh, an increase in GDP, but it's the opposite of what uh, the classical economics and Marx uh, recommended. Uh, and in fact, uh, the, uh, instead of increasing public ownership since, uh, uh, let's say, 1980 was the great change, uh, the rentier interests, the financial, real estate, uh, and uh, insurance interests have uh, regained much of the economic and political power that they seem to be losing a century ago. Now, this uh, counter-revolution is being led by the financial sector, and it really is a counter-revolution. Uh, banking system uh, centers have taken the lead in fighting against uh, taxation. Uh, and uh, most bank loans are collateralized by, by wealth. In order to get a loan to buy wealth, you have to have wealth that you pledge uh, in the form of a house as collateral uh, or stocks and bonds uh, or uh, your future ability uh, uh, to earn an income. And uh, if, if you look at, uh, make a, a diagram of how the economy works, uh, the finance capital is based on what's called the fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate, followed by uh, monopolies. So the fire sector is really a symbiotic sector. Finance, insurance, and real estate are not part of the industrial economy. They're not part of uh, producing uh, wealth, but they're, they're extracting revenue, uh, uh, extracting rent, extracting insurance charges, extracting uh, interest and uh, financial fees. And uh, what it extracts are at the expense of the uh, rest of the sector. So uh, 
many uh, people who've studied Marx are familiar with uh, exploitation under industrial capitalism by the industrialists. Uh, but finance capitalism has its own mode of uh, exploiting labor. Uh, and uh, uh, essentially, labor has to pay interest and penalties. It has to pay health insurance. And it has to pay rents uh, for homeownership, or else it has to pay mortgage debt. Uh, for it. So finance capitalism exploits labor by probably a larger uh, dollar amount than uh, the industrial profits are. And that's why finance goes to where the industrial profits are. Uh, in, the, uh, in the early 19th century, when Ricardo wrote, uh, finance made its money on international trade. So of course it wanted to back uh, the specialization of labor, and, uh, uh, but, uh, and it didn't mainly make loans to real estate because the landlord class owned that. But once uh, you democratized homeownership, once you said uh, uh, land is not only is no longer going to be owned just by uh, the people and families that conquered England or America, but by anybody can uh, uh, have uh, their own home and buy real estate. And all of this is bought on credit, and all of a sudden uh, the whole rent. Uh, sector that uh, classical economics focused on has been uh, turned into interest uh, for the financial uh, sector. And essentially, uh, the aim is uh, to control what people need so that whether you're a landlord or a drug manufacturer, you can say, uh, uh, our idea of the free market is your money or your life. Make a choice. Your free choice, you know, you can live in the street or you can borrow from us and have a home of your own. You can have a life of unemployment and poverty, or you can borrow from us and have an education so that you can afford to get a job. And then you can borrow more money to buy a car to drive to your job uh, if uh, you want to do that. So uh, finance capital also helps industrial exploitation uh, of labor because once you can drive uh, your labor force into mortgage debt and consumer debt and student debt and credit card debt, uh, then all of a sudden, uh, if you lose your job, you fall behind in these debt payments. And uh, if you don't have the money to make your stipulated money monthly payment on your credit card uh, or your uh, uh, mortgage or your rent, then all of a sudden your credit rating goes down and the interest rate that you have to pay goes up to 29%. The GDP statistics in America uh, say this is called financial service. Uh, and it's counted in GDP as uh, the bank providing more services by taking the risk of having to uh, charge you a higher and higher interest rate. Uh, language is uh, sort of, uh, it's become Orwellian language, meaning uh, you, have, you create a artificial vocabulary that means the opposite in uh, print from what it used to mean uh, you've had uh, the conquest of language. Uh, now, healthcare has also become an increasingly important way of locking workers into their current jobs because uh, today most workers have their health insurance paid by their employer. Now, what that means is if you, uh, you get fired, uh, all of a sudden you don't have any healthcare anymore. And under uh, the Obamacare program, you have to pay at least $6,000 per person to pay for your own health care without a job to pay. So uh, workers are afraid of losing their job. 
And uh, Alan Greenspan, the head of the Federal Reserve, explained to Congress that this is called the traumatized worker syndrome. Employers are afraid to form a union because it, they may be fired and lose their health care and uh, their credit card rates will go up. Or even if they complain about the job or unsafe working conditions, if they say, wait a minute, we want a mask so that we don't get the virus. Uh, they're considered a complainer. They're fired on the spot as a troublemaker. Uh, they all of a sudden don't have health care anymore. They're locked into uh, the credit card debt, the mortgage debt, uh, having to pay rent to a landlord, uh, the health care, uh, everything else. So finance capitalism locks employees into uh, a traumatized, weak position where they're completely dependent. Now, the other uh, point that I made uh, in the earlier lecture is that finance capitalism is based on the mathematics of compound interest. It's an exponential growth in growth in debt. Any interest rate is a doubling time. Uh, any interest rate will double the debt, the debt in a given number of years. So uh, economies can't grow as fast as the interest rate does. Uh, the rate of income, uh, income growth uh, for the last uh, uh, 10 years, uh, ever since the Obama depression uh, that he caused in 2009 by bailing out the banks instead of the uh, uh, indebted homeowners, uh, wages haven't grown at all, but the debts have grown and grown and grown. So compound interest is what is vastly increasing the amount of debt. So every economy is like uh, a Ponzi scheme. Uh, and a Ponzi scheme means you have to create, you have to keep pouring more and more money into paying into the scheme, in this case, into paying debt service in order to keep the whole financial system from collapsing. And that's why the government now, the economy doesn't have any more money uh, for people to pay the financial uh, sector and their, their bank loans uh, and mortgages uh, when they work for restaurants that have been closed down, businesses that have been closed down. So the government is now uh, printing the money and giving it to the banks and buying uh, stocks and buying bonds and buying uh, mortgage loans. So that all of a sudden uh, you have to keep the debt growing faster than the economy in order to prevent a crash. But in the end, there is a crash. So all finance capitalist economies have to crash. That's inherent in the mathematics of compound interest. And more than any other economist of the 19th century, Marx spelled out uh, what everybody had written about compound interest uh, up to his time in volume three of Capital. Now, this, the fact that you know that the economy is going to collapse in the end means that the time frame of finance capitalism is short term compared to industrial capitalism. Uh, if deindustrialization is how you make your money, if you make money by uh, lending money to a corporate raider and the raider buys a company, fires a labor force, says we can't afford to pay your pensions anymore, or we're going to go bankrupt. That wipes out your pensions, and we're going to pay the pensions to ourselves as uh, management fees uh, and dividends. Uh, so, uh, then uh, obviously you're going to leave an empty shell in your wake. Well, that's what uh, the whole financial rating process of the uh, 1980s did. That's what the junk bond uh, and the bank fraud movement of uh, the uh, uh, 2000s uh, did, as it, uh, the junk mortgage loans of uh, SNL uh, frauds of the 1980s did. Uh, you know the economy is going to 
collapse. So you grab the money and run, and uh, you empty it out as fast as you can, and then you move it to an offshore banking center, uh, a tax enclave, usually in a, uh, the Cayman Islands or uh, Panama, uh, or you, you launder it uh, so it appears to be offshore. Nobody can find it anymore. So money laundering and the concealment of uh, the wealth that you've uh, emptied out the economy from uh, is a key. Instead of industrial engineering, then you have financial engineering. You don't have to spend all the time that it takes uh, uh, to develop a, a new product, to organize its production and its marketing strategy. All you have to do is take over a company that already has all this, and then you just empty it out. Uh, the uh, Chicago Tribune newspaper uh, was bought out by a real estate magnate who uh, uh, essentially uh, had uh, put the workers' pensions into Tribune stock, bid it all up, uh, emptied out the company by paying himself, and then wiped out all of the workers' uh, pension savings. Uh, and that's been the norm for the last 30 years uh, in the United States. That one of the easiest ways of finance capitalism to make money is to uh, wipe out the workers' pension funds. Uh, and you can do this, again, finance capital grows by compound interest faster than the, uh, the real economy. And uh, uh, this compound interest paid to the financial sector, what does it do with the money? Well, it, it, it buys other assets. Uh, when the finance, uh, banks in America don't lend to uh, factories to be built, they don't lend to increase the means of production, uh, they will uh, let uh, companies pledge their assets as collateral. They will have a mortgage on the factory buildings, on uh, some of the machinery, but it won't lend anything to create money or to create capital. So what the financial sector does, it makes, uh, it takes it it more and more of its interest and uh, capital gains. It makes more loans and it, it, uh, it'll lend more and more of the proportion of a housing uh, uh, price, for instance, to borrowers. Uh, when uh, 50 years ago, when I bought uh, my first house in New York, the rule of thumb was banks would, uh, uh, the buyer had to come down with one third of the money as a down payment. And uh, the mortgage, a bank wouldn't lend you a mortgage uh, to buy a house that absorbed more than one quarter of your income. And that meant that everybody could afford to buy a house that would self amortize, that is pay it itself off in 30 years. And you could, uh, every white person, uh, if you were black, you, you couldn't get the loan. You wouldn't even be allowed to buy a house in most neighborhoods. But if you're a white person in America, uh, you were able to uh, spend one quarter of your income buying a house uh, at a, uh, that would pay off and you would own the house free and clear, no mortgage after 30 years, which is about your uh, remaining working life. Well, all, gradually, as the financial sector made more and more money, it lent more and more until uh, by 2008, uh, when the uh, real estate crisis came, uh, down to today, the uh, Federal and, uh, Mortgage Housing Authority will insure government mortgages that absorb up to 43% of the borrower's income. Well, instead of paying a quarter of your income uh, for a mortgage, you now have to pay 43% to afford the higher uh, uh, price. And you don't have to have any down payment at all. You don't have to save up any money. You can buy zero down payment and uh, you don't even have to pay the interest. There will be the, uh, uh, you, uh, you don't have to pay off the mortgage in 30 years. 
is called no amortization uh, mortgage or interest only mortgage. All of the money you paid for the mortgage will only pay the interest. So you don't build up your equity at all. That is your home ownership. You, you begin with almost uh, no home ownership and you'll never gain the home ownership. Uh, and this has occurred on so widely a scale that over half the value of average uh, real estate in the United States is owed to the banks. So what people nominally own their homes, but the real owner that uh, uh, owns uh, claims for more than half the home is the mortgage banking sector. Uh, however, the homeowner, not the banker, is responsible for paying the real estate taxes, for paying the upkeep, uh, for paying the uh, water and sewer fees, the electrical fees, and for uh, uh, paying the insurance uh, to make sure that the home isn't, uh, isn't uh, wiped out so that if the home does lose, the bank will get repaid, the homeowner will get wiped out by the insurance, but at least the banker uh, will be repaid by the insurance policy that the homeowner has to uh, 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 borrow and take out is uh, a condition for getting the mortgage uh, to begin with. So you have the financial sector using all of its uh, compound interest, all of this exponential growth in debt service to uh, uh, lend on more and more uh, to buy assets, uh, to buy more stocks and bonds, to bid up stock prices, to lower bond prices, to raise real estate prices, and to buy other assets like fine arts. Uh, Andy Warhol etchings, uh, uh, anything that is uh, an asset, that uh, a trophy uh, that, that, can, that can be something. Well, obviously, uh, as you all know, the real estate and financial markets collapsed in, in 2008. And uh, at that point, the government came in with uh, the Federal Reserve Bank with what's called quantitative easing, meaning they created the money to simply pay the banks. When the debtors couldn't afford to pay the debts at compound interest, when they couldn't keep the Ponzi scheme going, the role of the banks was to uh, essentially uh, finance, uh, the central bank was to finance the commercial banking sector to make sure that the, uh, the, the creditors and the 1% didn't uh, uh, lose any money. And earlier in uh, this year, 2020, when uh, the Trump administration uh, passed the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act, they sent $1,200 uh, to every American who, uh, whose family earned less than $180,000 uh, per year. Now, they, did, uh, they then did a survey. What did people do with this 16 this $1,200 uh, a piece. Well, uh, the, uh, most of the money was usually put into the banks. So uh, the uh, recipients of this $1,200 uh, coronavirus money, uh, because uh, the government knew they, they were unemployed, they weren't making as much money before, they simply paid down the debt. They didn't use it to buy more goods and services. They didn't use it to revive the economy. And in fact, the economy kept, kept shrinking. And uh, that's uh, uh, essentially uh, the economy now is continuing to shrink and nobody knows what's going to happen in uh, January when uh, uh, the debts and the uh, rents and the mortgage uh, money that uh, uh, people haven't been paying all summer long during the virus and the unemployment, when all of a sudden that comes uh, through. So what, we, what has emerged from all of this when you put together all of these ways of finance, uh, capital making money, 
uh, you realize that finance capitalism is a form of central planning. But the aim of the central planning is to make asset price gains or finance capital gains, not profits, uh, not uh, uh, higher living standards, not more goods and services, not uh, to expand the economy and expand the market, to, not to build more housing. It just to, uh, it, it's to make more money for the 1% because the 1% have gained control of the government. Uh, just as they privatized uh, uh, infrastructure and uh, the communication system and uh, edu the privatizing education, uh, they've uh, privatized the government. Uh, and in the United States, the government is basically put up for sale to the campaign contributors. Uh, and there was, the case went to the Supreme Court that passed the Citizens United law uh, that said, yes, corporations are people, and just as a person can contribute, a corporation can contribute to uh, financial uh, campaigns. And in the United States, not only are politicians elected by running, uh, buying television time to run commercials and organizing campaigns paid for by their uh, financial contributors, mainly on Wall Street in the real estate sector, but uh, uh, the uh, people vote according to what the newspapers and the uh, television uh, uh, Show, uh, stations tell them that's all privatized. And even judges, even the courts, the judges have to be elected in the United States. So the judges have been, uh, their campaigns are financed by uh, the financial sector that wants the judges to either remake the law to favor finance capitalism, not labor capitalism, uh, not socialism, and not industrial capitalism but finance capitalism. But uh, even if the law uh, is against monopolies, even if the law is in favor of the renters, not the landlords, the courts are corrupt. Uh, and uh, uh, one movie after another in, in Hollywood is made to show uh, corrupt judges, corrupt courts, the corrupt police force. The government is corrupted by the financial system. And that corruption is called financial efficiency and taking over the government to plan so that uh, finance can treat, uh, if, if you uh, pollute the land, if you have an oil spill, if you create uh, a disease, uh, unsafe working conditions, uh, and you kill people, you may have to spend, I think the average is $5 for every worker you kill. Uh, and uh, $1 for every million dollars worth of land uh, that you destroy. You make, uh, uh, paying, breaking the law is a cost of doing business. Uh, and that's why uh, lawyers uh, are so important along with judges uh, under finance capitalism. It's a legalistic society where if you can control the courts, then it doesn't matter what the court, what the law says. You can control the application of the law. And uh, this used to be called corrupting the law, but now it's called modernizing or financializing uh, the legal system. So uh, the, the, the dynamic uh, of finance capitalism is just the opposite of uh, employing uh, uh, wage labor. Uh, it, uh, uh, it, and it's the opposite of uh, the classical economic idea of taxing finance and real estate and taxing monopolies or preventing them. Uh, finance capital seeks to avoid paying taxes, make the labor pay the taxes. Uh, uh, not the landlords, not the absentee owners. Uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, has just released his uh, tax returns, and uh, he claims to have billions of dollars, 
and paid only $750 in income tax. If you look at statistics for the real estate sector in the United States since 1945, the real estate sector pays hardly any income tax at all because it's given all sorts of tax breaks that we'll talk about in lecture four uh, later. Uh, essentially, uh, you, you have financial capitalism turning classical economics inside out, but rolling history back to feudalism. We're moving back to a feudal society. So what you can, what is called moving forward to the post-industrial society, moving into a financial society, is really walking, moving backwards into a feudal society of neo-serfdom uh, or debt peonage, where uh, the workers, in order to get a job and an education and housing, you have to buy everything at the, 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 family, the uh, company store uh, that controls the prices. You have to go so deeply into debt uh, that you're essentially a debt peon. It's a little different from serfdom. In serfdom, the serfs were tied to the land and they couldn't move. And when a landlord uh, might choose to sell the land, he'd sell the serfs with it. Well, right now, uh, the debt peons can live wherever they want in America. But wherever they, they decide to move, they're going to have to uh, subject themselves to the same debt peonage, uh, to buy a house uh, on mortgage credit, to pay for an education, to pay for a car loan, to balance their budget by taking out credit card debt, and to live on debt. They have to go so deeply into debt that they use their they lose their economic liberty. They lose their ability uh, to choose. And uh, so seemingly scientific uh, statistics show all of this is uh, being progress and actually making money. Uh, and post-classical economic statistics define all income and wealth is being earned by contributing to production. This is the revolution against classical economics and hence against Marxism that occurred in the 1890s. Uh, uh, the uh, economic theory of uh, John Bates Clark and uh, the Austrians and uh, the other uh, post-classical economists said, any way of making money is just as productive as making money in any other way, making money by rent, making money by lending money to people in foreclosing, uh, making money by creating a monopoly and charging a monopoly price is just as productive as starting a factory. Making money by crime is uh, the most productive at all. But uh, hypocritically, uh, crime is not included in, a, uh, in the financial statistics unless it's committed by a billionaire. If a billionaire does it, it's not crime. Uh, but if, uh, if a poor person steals money uh, uh, from a store, uh, he can go to jail, that's crime. But if a rich uh, uh, rentier makes money uh, by exploiting people, that's called uh, creating wealth. Uh, and the economic statistics create uh, count that as a creation of wealth. For instance, if, uh, when your home uh, price rises in value, when new buyers of homes have to pay, uh, uh, pay more for a home, uh, the, the value of uh, the home, if you were to rent to yourself, uh, if you were a home owner, actually your own landlord renting to yourself, that's uh, counted as part of GDP. 8% of GDP is that amount. And when uh, uh, banks and credit card companies raise their penalty rates to 29%, that's, as I mentioned, called financial services, 
that increase in the interest rate charge is in addition to GDP. When rents go up, uh, is uh, people lose their home and large uh, uh, real estate monopolies like Blackstone Company buy up these houses, charge more for rent, uh, uh, that the increased rent is counted as increased GDP. So the financial sector uh, creates an entirely different picture of reality and statistical picture of reality than classical economics did in the 19th century. And they claim that, you see, here it is in numbers, we have it to the decimal point. If it's in numbers, it has to be scientific. And that's why what we're doing is called scientific economics. Well, this is all double talk. I could have done this whole lecture as a comedy show uh, and it probably would have uh, got a larger audience, but uh, you have such absurdity uh, that uh, the book I wrote, J is for Junk Economics, is all about the economic vocabulary. And if you've read George Orwell's 1984 and uh, you know what uh, doublethink is, uh, you realize that uh, all of this is uh, uh, basically, uh, if you can control the vocabulary, you can control how people think about what is happening, and you can make them think that even as they're getting poorer, they're somehow getting richer because uh, their home is rising in price, even as uh, this entails more and more debt service, more and more taxes, and it's making them poorer and poorer, but uh, somehow uh, the statistics tell them they're getting richer, and who are you going to believe? The statistics are your actual experience. And people are more willing to believe the statistics and what people tell them they're feeling than uh, how they actually feel. Well, what happens? You're having a lot of uh, uh, drug abuse here. You're having America going through what China went through with the opium wars in the 19th century, except the opium wars are now being waged by the drug sector against the domestic, uh, domestic economy. That's where the money is being made. Opium and pharmaceuticals, uh, the death rate from opium overdose is going way up. Uh, lifespans are shortening here. Uh, that's one of the uh, demographic effects of finance capitalism. Um, and if you want to look at where America and much of Europe is going, look at what happened to Greece in the last uh, five or six years, ever since uh, uh, it had to uh, pay it the foreign debt that uh, uh, the IMF uh, loaded it down with. Uh, Greece was... Uh, it, uh, had to suffer austerity, its population shrank, uh, lifespans shrank, and more and more Greeks emigrated. Same thing happened to uh, Russia after 1991, and it adopted neoliberal economics. Uh, the economy shrank, life uh, employment shrank, people were impoverished, uh, they uh, got sick, uh, and uh, uh, it ended up with President Putin saying that more Russians lost their lives as a result of the neoliberalism sponsored by the United States, then uh, lost their lives in World War II. And finance capitalism therefore has become uh, the new way of uh, economic warfare. It's a way of uh, destroying uh, other countries uh, economically and demographically, and uh, uh, essentially ending up grabbing their property, just like uh, wars used to be about grabbing the land and natural resources. That's what imperialism was all about. But uh, in 1991, in the 1990s, American and European imperialism worked financially by uh, neoliberalizing uh, the Soviet Union, uh, Russia, uh, and uh, the other uh, Soviet economies. So to summarize what I'm saying, 
Prices for housing, the cost of education, medical care, uh, they're all inflated on bank credit. And that obliges workers to go deeper and deeper into debt, but it's all counted as an increase in GDP. Uh, and even though economies are getting more indebted and getting poorer, uh, the uh, economics textbooks say, this is how you increase wealth. Well, it turns out you're only increasing wealth uh, for the 1%, but uh, the economy is really all about the 1%. It's not about the rest of the economy. And so the question is, who are you going to run the economy for? Are you going to run it for the uh, 1%? You're going to run it for the uh, 99%. Uh, and I think the best way to contrast industrial capitalism to finance capitalism is to divide the economy into two parts. That is to divide the private sector into two parts. Uh, the production and economy and uh, consumption economy uh, is wrapped in uh, separate from the fire sector. Finance, insurance, and real estate is a parasite on the industrial sector. And the question is, where is the private sector's money going to go? Is it going to go to the parasite or is it going to go to the industrial host economy? And I explain all this in uh, uh, detail in my book, Killing the Host, because that's what uh, the financial economy does. It kills the industrial host and uh, ends in a crash. Uh, and uh, the objective is to create a crash, to take all your money and run, get it somewhere else, and you've emptied out the economy, and then you go uh, uh, into another economy. So uh, it's all about making capital gains and extracting capital. Uh, Margaret Thatcher's uh, policy uh, was in a nutshell, uh, once she got rid of uh, England's uh, uh, public housing, she said, oh, I'm sorry you lost your job. I hope you made a killing buying a, a British telephone stock and selling your house. Uh, people were given their uh, uh, com uh, community housing uh, public housing, and uh, they ended up selling it because they needed to sell it uh, to, uh, to break even. They were able to buy telephone stock, and of course then the telephone charges went way up, uh, and their cost of living went way up. They privatized uh, the public uh, tra uh, railroads, and uh, all of a sudden the railroad service went way down. The, the price went way up. They privatized the bus company, and a bus driver's family ended up buying the bus company on credit, and uh, uh, the, uh, the wife became uh, one of the richest uh, women uh, in England by uh, just cutting back uh, the bus lines that went to the smaller towns. Cut back the buses. We don't make enough profit there. Uh, sell off the bus terminals that were conveniently located in the center of London so that everybody could get uh, uh, to the bus terminal to get to the job. Let's uh, put the bus terminal way outside of London. So people have to take uh, an expensive uh, tube uh, transport to get outside to London to get to the faraway bus terminal to go to where they're going. And uh, life became much harder for the Brits, but it made a killing in the stock market for uh, the people who bought the bus companies on credit and for the bankers who invested in uh, uh, the bus company and uh, who privatized it and made uh, money for the bus company to buy its rivals and create a uh, bus monopoly. Well, uh, I'm going to pick up the theme of this in the next lecture. Uh, and the next lecture is going to be the, the final, uh, the characteristic of finance capitalism is to internationalize itself. Uh, if you're going to take the money out of the economies you wreck, you have to find a new economy to exploit. Uh, you, you've emptied out the US economy. 
Where are you going to put it? Well, they'd like to put the money in China and buying control of China and uh, Vietnam and uh, like they bought uh, control of uh, much of Japanese uh, uh, auto companies. You, you want to extend their uh, financial system over the whole world economy. And the whole Cold War II that we're seeing today is a Cold War between finance capitalism trying to expand itself into financial imperialism or free trade imperialism and take over other economies and prevent other economies from uh, making wealth uh, by industrial capitalism or industrial socialism, uh, which is what China is doing. So the war between the United States and China is actually a war of economic uh, systems. Uh, and you have the United States and its European satellites on the one hand, again, China, Russia, and uh, the BRICS countries, uh, India, uh, Brazil, uh, and any uh, Iran, any other countries participating in the Belt and Road Initiative, I should understand that it's between, as a fight between what kind of economic system the world is going to ha have. And uh, Rosa Luxemburg, a century ago, a uh, Marxist uh, economist in uh, Poland, uh, put it uh, uh, briefly. She said, the fight is between socialism and barbarism. And that's what the Cold War is about. What kind of a world are we going to have? Uh, are we going to have economic warfare uh, that is uh, won by the uh, financial class and by getting the rest of the world into debt and imposing IMF austerity programs uh, such as are imposed on Greece, on Argentina, uh, and if a country votes socialist, as Chile did, then you overthrow the government as uh, Hillary Clinton uh, overthrew the government of Honduras and uh, turned it into a, uh, a coup d'etat when uh, the president wanted to do land reform. She said, you can't do land reform. Land reform is against America. We want to buy your land. We want to turn it into coffee export land and make export crops. We can't have land reform. We want the money, not your citizens. Uh, and if you fight us, we will kill you. Uh, she overthrew them and America uh, overthrew Bolivia, overthrew Ecuador. Uh, uh, this is uh, uh, ultimately, Finance uh, locks in its power, not simply by uh, extracting interest, not simply by impoverishing the country, but uh, by violence. That's how uh, the senatorial class made its uh, money in ancient Rome. Uh, it's how uh, uh, every country has ended up uh, in a fight uh, between uh, a, a class that wants to get rich by grabbing the wealth of the country for itself by impoverishing uh, the country at large. So finance capitalism is a, uh, not only a fight against socialism, it's also a fight against industrial capitalism because industrial capitalism uh, can only succeed uh, as China succeeding by uh, public uh, supply of basic uh, needs and basic services. And finance capitalism wants to monopolize these public services. Uh, the reason they're public is because they're natural monopolies, like the post office, which there's pressure to monopolize in the United States. Um, and in one sense, even though I've said industrial capitalism is internationalist, wanting to control the whole world, it's also very nationalist in the sense that it's centered in the United States. Um, and uh, the United States is a sponsor of finance capitalism because Wall Street basically is in control of uh, the financial city of London, the Paris Bourse, uh, the 
uh, Frankfurt uh, Stock Exchange. Uh, it's, the, it's Wall Street that has become the central planner for central financial planning centers throughout the whole uh, Western world. And that is the kind of global economy that is being juxtaposed to uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and the kind of uh, economy that uh, uh, China is trying to create as an alternative. And uh, these dynamics are, are uh, imposed specifically by the United States as their sponsors through the International Monetary Fund, where the United States has veto power, by the World Bank, and by NATO. And ultimately, uh, U.S. government officials have told me they can get European politicians to do whatever they want simply by bribing them. They say the good thing about European politics is it's all privatized. Politicians are in it to make money. How are you going to make money if you're a politician? You, get, you take a bribe from the United States to support policies that the United States supports, not German voters or Dutch voters or other uh, NATO voter countries. Essentially, the politicians are work, uh, run by the United States. And just to make sure that they uh, uh, don't double cross uh, the driver, uh, the United States uh, tax their phones. For instance, uh, a year or two ago, it became uh, there was a, a uproar in Germany that America's taxing uh, was uh, tapping Angela Merkel's phone. Well, of course, it's ta tapping it. It wants to make sure that Angela Merkel doesn't do what uh, the head of Honduras did and make us have to overthrow her, make her have a heart attack or, or something. Uh, that, uh, that sounds conspiratorial, but it's how the world works. Hollywood gets it right. This is not in the economics textbooks. The economics textbook doesn't say you lock in a free market by uh, always having con controlling the police and the CIA, and sometimes you have to work covertly. That is not in the economic system. It's called exter uh, ex externality, meaning it's external to the models, but it's not external to uh, how the world works. Uh, when I was at Chase Manhattan, uh, one of the people reporting uh, to Chase uh, of their uh, sending uh, letters every week was uh, uh, the Archduke von Habsburg, uh, who would send reports on what's happening uh, through, through everywhere. And uh, I was actually in charge of uh, receiving this uh, uh, intelligence and spreading it to the rest of the uh, economics department. And every Friday afternoon, we were all getting pretty tired uh, of the week and I'd pull out his reports and I'd read it and it was like the movie of the week. It was like a, a thriller about uh, all of the covert uh, espionage and dirty tricks uh, that were being uh, 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 done all over the world. And I guarantee you that the bankers uh, not only know what's happening, but reciprocally, uh, almost all, intel uh, all bankers are where intelligence operatives want to be placed. Uh, when I was at Chase, uh, the office right across uh, the hall from me, there was a man from Naval Intelligence there whose job was to collect all of the bank intelligence that was of interest in Naval Intelligence. Uh, my be best friend at uh, Chase had come from military intelligence, uh, most of the higher officers from Naval Intelligence. So the banks and the intelligence agencies uh, and the government are all intertwined uh, to make sure that the world is going to uh, follow a financialized system. So uh, all of these lectures, 11 lectures are moving towards uh, the end, which is going to be, how do you reverse where the world is going? Uh, how, uh, how do you change the 
direction that the world is moving towards financial imperialism and free trade imperialism. Well, it's going to re require deprivatization. You're going to have to reclaim natural monopolies for the public domain. That was the fight of the 19th century. You're going to have to uh, get rid of the financial class. That means how do you, there's only one way to free your labor force and to free your industry and free your population from debt peonage. You have to wipe out the debt. That means the good part of wiping out the debt is you wipe out the savings of the 1%. If you don't wipe out the savings of the 1%, you're going to leave them uh, in the same position that the House of Lords was in in England and that the uh, feudal aristocracy was in. You're going to leave one the 1% with all the wealth in the world. You have to, by canceling the debts, you wipe out savings on the other side of the balance sheet because one person's debt is another party saving. And the debts that the 99% owe are the savings and the wealth of the 1%. You have to be able to think of both sides of the balance sheet at once. Uh, it's a different kind of thinking that's taught in the uh, economics textbooks because they only talk about the real economy, the production and consumption economy. They don't talk about the debt and asset side of the economy. They don't talk about the balance sheet aspects of the economy. That's what uh, I'm going to try to spell out. And that's what uh, the books uh, that I write are all about. Uh, my super imperialism is translated into Chinese, along with my trade theory, but none of my uh, historical, right, none of my description of how the U.S. economy works, none of my economic theories. I've done a few articles uh, for the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, but the, the basic books have not been uh, translated. Uh, and it's necessary to realize that in order to have a, a Marxist economy, you, that uh, includes everything that was leading into Marxism. That includes the classical economics of Adam Smith and Ricardo and John Stuart Mill, who said that landlords make money in their sleep. We don't want a landlord class making money in its sleep. We want everybody to make money by being awake, by working and by uh, doing something productive for society. That's uh, uh, what the society you have to create. But to do that takes the same kind of political uh, re revolution today that occurred in the 19th century. And remember, the 19th century classical economic revolution failed. Uh, it failed in the 1890s. It failed by World War I. And instead of achieving the free market that Adam Smith and the classical economists wanted, you had a financialized market uh, of the kind that uh, uh, Marx described in volume two and three in Capital, hoping that the, uh, uh, that uh, the European countries would be able to pave the way for socialism by freeing themselves from the rentier economy and the financial economy, uh, but uh, they didn't do it. They didn't uh, uh, free themselves. And uh, that really is uh, uh, the task of uh, today. It's to recover what the 19th century classical uh, evolution was all about, uh, creating a tax system and a public a public infrastructure system that uh, led naturally to socialism. Well, China's already done this. It's already have, uh, done the most important thing by having the financial system sent already in the public domain. It's easy to cancel the debts when you're canceling debts to yourself. China can do it. But uh, that can't be done in the West because the debts are owed to private bankers that have the economic power and political power to prevent governments from interfering with them 
and uh, uh, China, all China can do with it is uh, with its allies is uh, to create a socialist economic system that will essentially leave the West uh, either to uh, move into a financial collapse until it looks like Greece and Argentina or like the United States will be looking in January, or to say, well, uh, if China can do it, we can do it too. That's going to be uh, what the balance of the 21st century is all about. <laughs>